Here we go. Take it away, Gene Parsons. Good evening, this is Chad Swimmer. Tonight, we are going to celebrate the life of Bill Lemos, one of Mendocino County's greatest educators, environmentalists, and a profound inspiration to us all. Bill passed away peacefully at his home on June 2nd, surrounded by family. He was born in 1949 in the town of Mendocino, a fourth-generation county resident descended from immigrants from the Azores, a fisherman, hiker, naturalist, historian, not to mention a banjo player the co-founder of the School of Natural Resources at Mendocino High School. He was instrumental in transferring over 10 square miles of private forest land into the Big River Headland State Park. He was a key player in moving the Marine Life Protection Act forward, and he was the co-chair of the Mendocino Trail Stewards. In the words of his colleague Robert Jamgoshen, he was a true eco-warrior. We're going to start off hearing from his daughter, Justine Lemos. Then we'll hear two interviews that we did with him last year and hear a little bit from Robert Jamgoshen. That's tonight on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Justine Lemos, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Sure thing, yeah. Your dad was really quite a person of fame on the Mendocino Coast. Yeah, well, I mean, dad was born in 1949 in Mendocino and the fourth generation of our Portuguese-American family who uh, originally came here from the Azores um, and was never involved in the locking industry directly, <laughs> I always like to say. Um, Dad's grandfather was um, the barber in Mendocino at the Mendocino Cafe. That's where my grandfather and all of his brothers and sisters were born. And Dad grew up in Mendocino in a different time when Mendocino was full of families and all the houses were actually houses and businesses and not tourist occupancies and hotels. And um, he lived away from the coast for a brief period of time to go to school at Chico State and then really came back to the coast and just had this intense love affair with Mendocino, its places, its environment, and its people, and lived his life in service to the community and to the environment. That was really what he, everything that he did was oriented towards uplifting people on the coast and uplifting and upholding the environmental integrity of the coast. Did he take you out into the woods often when you were, you were young? <laughs> Continuously from the time I was incredibly small. Actually, the first wilderness trip that I did with dad, um, 
and my mom was when I, when my mom was pregnant with me, she was seven months, eight months pregnant. And they went on a two week backpack trip into the Yolo Bully wilderness, which was a place that we frequently backpacked. And then throughout my childhood, my dad would put me, I would hike with them. And then my dad would put me on top of his 50 pound backpack and mm-hmm. carry me um, through the trails. So I spent a lot of my childhood um, in the woods with my dad, both for extended backpacking trips, but then also just forays and forages into the into the woods for mm-hmm. um, you know wild crafting and mushroom gathering and all the things. We spent a lot of time outside. Yeah. Did he end up being your teacher when you were in high school? Oh, actually, I had my dad. My dad went. Um, I went into sixth grade. My father was involuntarily transferred to the middle school. He didn't want to go, and they needed a middle school English teacher, and they put him down there. And he wasn't that excited about it. But actually, that meant that I had my father every single year from seventh grade to when I graduated as a senior. So I had my dad for six years of school, and it was great. We had a lot of fun together. We never didn't get along. I mean. My father was just, he had such an even hand on the keel and such a generous um, and graceful personality that I feel like I can only remember once or twice in my entire life when my father actually got mad at me. Like, wow. period, end of story. <laughs> yeah. He uh, was famous for taking students on long wilderness trips. Yeah, yeah so that was his wild classrooms Um uh, program that he had done during his college and his master's degree, um, a lot of backpack experiences with a man named Robert Greenway on the middle fork of the Eel River. And so then my father began to adopt that program to um, for high schoolers. It was usually 10 days to two weeks in the wilderness backpacking. Um, and I definitely participated in those trips and from a young age and then also as a high schooler and then also post high school, we would take um, wilderness trips with alumni of that program who would all come together and we'd go out into the wilderness. Um, so yeah, it was it was a it was a, an experience um, that really affected many of the youth of Mendocino from the, late 70s, early 80s, I probably have the years wrong, but all the way through the 90s into the 2000s. And it really wasn't about like outdoor education as such. And it wasn't about like rock climbing. It wasn't about like the hiking. It was about a deep immersion in the wilderness. Um, And then to even up the stakes further, we would go out into the wilderness from 10 days to two weeks. We'd build sweat lodges in the traditional manner. We'd sweat a bunch. We were eating a light diet. And then dad would send us off for two to three days of alone time on the river where you'd just go and you'd set up camp and be alone. And like dad always said, he brought everyone back alive every single time. (laughs) That said, there were some very intense stories and experiences on those trips because, you know, at that time, of course there was no cell phone. I mean, you're, you're hiked in miles and miles and miles from the nearest dirt road. And then from there, it's a huge drive back to any kind of point of civilization or emergency help. So um, there were definitely 
definitely a, a thing. And he did them solo for a long t- time, and then eventually he, my mom was like, you have to take in another another adult with you. So he started always taking another adult, yeah. Did he always go to the same, take people to the same place? Um, Almost always in the Yolaboli wilderness. It's a, a part of the wilderness that wasn't really frequented. Like, we would go for two weeks and not see anybody else. And the bears, because they aren't used to people, are really scared of people. And you don't even have to really bear bag your food. Like, they don't mess with you. And so it's just this really beautiful, pristine um, wilderness where you can almost drink out of the river. I mean, there are plenty of, of springs to drink out, but just really, really um, unfettered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were telling a story the other day about how he was getting fishermen and various people together for the Marine Life Protection Act. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, in the Marine Life Protection Act, um, Dad was working actually as a consultant for NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, which was not without controversy. Um, But he was working really intensely with uh, Priscilla Hunter, with the Coyote Band of of Pomo, on the MLPA. And as I recall, um, because I was actually in town that summer, and they were having a big conference in Fort Bragg at CV Star that they were trying to bring together the fisher people and the tribes and the environmental lobbyists and the various local constituents to try and set up the map. They knew that they were going to have these marine life life protection areas, but they didn't know where exactly they were going to be. And, you know, my dad had been a commercial fisher person. He'd been a sport fisher person on the coast. And then an avid diver, abalone diver and reef check and all this stuff. So I I always feel like dad just knew the coast and the waters and also all the land so well. You could hike anywhere in the county almost with dad and he'd know these landmarks and he'd know where to go and he'd know where this creek was and he'd done surveys on this land. So anyhow, he knew the coast really well and knew the various areas where people fish really well. And they were at this impasse where the fisher folk were not wanting to create these protected areas for a variety of reasons. And they were just at this impasse, standoff, standoff, standoff. No, 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 there was no room for negotiation. No one was coming to the table. No one was putting anything forward that anyone could compromise at. And I remember my dad being really frustrated. And then he thought in his mind and he told me about this. He was like, okay. And he invited one person who was a commercial fisherman, and I don't know who that person was, who he had known for for years and years um, because my dad had been a commercial fisherman out of Noyo. It was like his, his his secret life, you know, instead of being an English teacher, he always secretly wanted to be a commercial fisher. So he'd take like a year off. And so he invited this guy out for drinks at the wharf And he bought him a beer and they sat down and they chatted together. And my dad basically said to this guy, if we don't figure out this map, the feds or the state is going to come in and figure out it out for us. Wouldn't it be a lot better if we coastal residents who know the areas can draw this map together? That is the best choice if we can draw the map. And that was when, right after that, people came to the table and the locals drew the map for the Marine Life Protection Act. So um, that was one of Dad's huge victories, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
when did he get involved with the Jackson struggle? Well, you know, it was actually after Ravel got my kid, dad's grandkid got involved by writing a letter to the editor um, of the local paper. And then the trail stewards picked up the letter and then dad got involved after that. But I should actually back up and say that my father and my mother, having lived on 409 for almost 50 years, they had always, with their 409 association, been trying to have an impact on the logging that was going on in their backyard and um, watched clear cut after clear cut happen on Casper Creek. And so they had always been involved in a variety of movements to change logging in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. We've had some real successes recently, and you had a story about during his last few weeks when he heard about the the withdrawal of the three timber harvest plans that were mm-hmm. under consideration. Can you tell us about that? So it was about five days before my dad passed, and the news came in that... Um, the three THPs got taken off of um, the Jackson logging mandate. And um, I got to tell my dad about that. And he was really, really excited and really happy. And it just filled him with a lot of joy. And he had my brother get down the... um, the really big map that he had of Jackson that he had upstairs that was like laminated on cardboard and or, you know, like a huge map on a cardboard backing and we brought it down to him and he sat up and looked at the map and was talking about each of those particular areas and how happy he was that um, we were able to get those, especially the Little North Fork. He was really, really happy that the land bordering the woodlands, that's the one bordering the woodlands, right? Yeah that it was, and the Big River Preserve, that that one was not going to be logged. So it just filled him with a lot of joy. And he was really adamant, like, don't let them take the rest of those trees. Like, just make them stop logging Jackson moratorium now. Like, some of the, not the last, but some of the last things he said to me was, you know, Homo land back, let's moratorium stop cutting the trees, basically. I'm just a boy, wayfaring stranger, passing through. This land of warmth, there's no sickness, toil, or danger in that fair land to which I go. That was Gene Parsons, recorded live at Camp One, Mendocino Woodlands, Wayfaring Stranger. And before that, we were listening to Justine Lemos speaking about her father, Bill. We're going to go now to an interview that Paul Schulman and I recorded with Bill in his living room last January. And this is about Bill Lemos's childhood at the Mendocino Woodlands. 
We're going to talk about the camps, family camps that happened from Piccolotti's, the company ranch, just to the north or to the east, uh, southeast of the Woodlands area, and then all the way down to Lily's. That whole stretch was family camp when I was small, and there was the Bishop camp, and there was the Costa camp, and there was the Brazil camp, and there was the Lily's camp. And and, and, and just to be clear, these are all the surnames of different families. Correct. The families who were either affiliated with the Union Lumber Company or knew somebody well enough to say, uh, can I use this area along Big River as a summer camp? The children and the wives normally would set up the camp and the fathers would come in and out and commute to the lumber mill in Fort Bragg. And then they would come in in the evenings and the kids and the, and the rest of the family, uh, moms and aunts and older uh, relatives would hang out at the river all summer long. And the interconnectivity of people along that stretch was just phenomenal. I mean, if you uh, ran out of a dozen eggs and you needed one, you'd go down river a couple of miles and somebody would give you a dozen eggs. We're talking about a time after the war, uh, World War II, 45 to about 1970, when those camps were real popular. And then when the Union Lumber Company sold that property to Georgia Pacific, those rights for those uh, wonderful summer days along the river were were taken back and those camps fell into disuse. What I found in my childhood, not only with the Woodlands, which was a recreational camp for mostly children coming out of the Bay Area, was that that was used um, for a specific purpose for a week at a time, whereas the family camps from the local people were months at a time, and that was really the difference. It sounds that, like Mendo's version of the Catskills. Yes. Know, with, it, the, with the guys going into the city and working, leaving the family up at the resort. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's sort of the way it was. The Woodlands Camp was a really important part of the whole scenario because it was designated recreation. You could walk over the hill, over the ridge, the Steam Donkey Trail now, and go over to what um, was a deeper swimming hole at what we call Deadman's Swimming Hole. It's also called Boyle's Camp. And that area had been... Uh, very popular with the people coming out of Fort Bragg, Mendocino. Fond memories of being along the river and watching uh, Model A races down the stream bed. <laughs> the young boys would bring their cars out there and they would see how far they could get up and down the river in their old jalopies. That was an awful lot of fun, I suppose, but it didn't do the river any good, but they did uh, have quite a bit of time to parade their cars in and out of there. And it was a pretty rocky road getting in and out of there. So, you know, those old those old jalopies could make it up over the hill. You have a fair amount of family experience in small-scale logging. You come from a family where logging is not a foreign activity. Yeah. Uh... I'm interested in the process by which people who come from one culture can reassess the presumptions of that reality and, and come to different conclusions later in their life, how that happened. Yeah, the era of uh, that uh, mentality of we can tackle these giant redwoods and put them on the ground and move them came from the shipping industry and the whaling industry where huge things had to be conveyed or moved or fledged out, you know, into uh, oil or whatever it was. And big, huge... Things got moved with the very simple tools. And so that mentality 
really came home here with the logging industry. And I think, you know, with the 27 dams that were built on Big River, um, those are just examples of how big people could think about what they were doing. We would, humans evolved into using the technology available and um, basically in the 1800s, it was, you know, a jack screw and uh, come along and, you know, move these things with steam power. And then, of course, with the development of, of diesel power, uh, things changed rapidly, and of course, things were moving much faster. But yeah, that that cultural thing from my family perspective of my family history is in the whaling industry in the Azor Islands, and then moving through that to the um, the settlement of the family here in Mendocino, working in the woods, uh, conveying uh, lumber from the chute down to the wading schooners, those kind of things are in my family history. I mean, yes, we all use wood. We're sitting in a wooden house. We're sitting around an oak table, uh, sitting on chairs made out of wood. We have to adapt to the things that are available. And yeah, my family has been involved. I've been involved. For me, it's this is a, a question of the times that you're a person who is now working to change the management of Jackson State Forest. You seem to me like you're reconciled with your family history. And one of the big questions in America right now is people are like, well, you know, you're asking me to hate my grandpa because he was he did such and such. How do you reconcile in your head love for the family that you have and the wood products that surround us and what you've evolved into? I think people did what they had to do at the time to provide sustenance for their families. And, um, and the mentality, of course, was a different, um, you know, take as much as you can and there will always be more. But we've come around to seeing, I think, in our perspective now in the environmental movement that there is a limited resource in so many areas, um, whether it's the uh, the forest or the seas or in uh, fossil fuels, whatever it is, there's just a limited amount to go around and we have to change our behaviors. This is the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZUIX listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. We are giving a tribute to the life of Bill Lemos, longtime Mendocino County resident, environmentalist, educator, and inspiration to us all. In the midst of these trying times, I always look for something to provide hope and inspiration. And as I'm recording, I look out the window and I just saw the first tiger swallowtail butterfly of the year land on a leaf and sit in the sun. Let's go now to Robert Jam Goshen, Bill's colleague at Mendocino High School, a friend and companion in many eco-adventures. I came onto the staff at Mendocino High School in 1985, and Bill was a teacher there. He'd been a teacher there for some time, and so we became colleagues at that time, and uh, that's that's how we met. And so we've been uh, together since... 1985, um, and and we really joined together strong once we joined uh, 
created the SONAR program. The SONAR program stands for the School of Natural Resources. Bill came up with that an acronym. He's being an English teacher is full of great words and ideas. That was a school that in 19, or it was in around 2000 we created. I went to a Natural Resource Institute training for teachers up in Oregon around that time. And that, that was an institute to, to um, teach us teachers how to bring natural resource programs back into the classroom and so um, it showed us how to set up partnerships with natural resource agencies and community agencies or community organizations. And so I went to Bill to talk to him about that idea. And he said, my gosh, I've been thinking about doing something like this for years. So we just hit it off hard on that idea and just went running with that idea. Uh, we went to our administration and they were supportive and, um, at that time, that we, we, we started writing some grants to get the program up and running, and we, we got a $40,000 grant with Fish and Game. Nice. And then, and, and then we landed a huge grant with the uh, Department of Education of California of, to the tune of $250,000, and that wow. just got us. Yeah, that just really got us rolling hard on, on the program. Uh, we were able to buy vans and create um, a, a a program that allowed us to team teach and we encouraged the administration to go into block scheduling so we had time to go do this these uh, research studies and so basically what we, we ended up doing was we created a program in which bill was the eco lit teacher and i was the environmental science teacher mm-hmm. and with this um school within the school we had the students going out to do um science and um conservation projects for community organizations like Parks and Rec and Fish and Wildlife. And we had the students going out and doing real science for the benefit of the community, basically. So we were doing plant surveys for Parks and Rec. Um, We put up wood duck boxes up on uh, dry dock. We were out there doing large woody debris studies and um, Little River and on Little North Fork, a big river up there by the woodlands. We were doing fish surveys, looking for coho, salmon, and we're doing all kinds of great stuff. Robert, how many kids <laughs> went through that program? Well, at a time, we, we would have anywhere from 18 to 25 kids a year. The, the program uh, is still continuing, and so I don't probably hundreds of kids have gone through the program, many of them becoming environmental engineers and environmental scientists and biologists and yeah, and um, it, right when the the school started up, there was the push to make um, Big River Estuary and the whole Big River um, watershed a, a state park, and so Bill got us really involved in that. And and something a lot of people don't know is that Bill was instrumental in the creation of the Big River watershed inclusion inclusion into uh, Mendocino Headland State Park, and he got the the School of Natural Resources to create a, a video. Um, that Misha Hedges produced that was real instrumental in, in showing off the Big River watershed and how important it is to save. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize that Bill was really involved with. Were you involved in any of the, the wilderness trips that he took students on? No, I didn't. Bill and I went on a lot of backpacks over the years, um, all over the Sierras and all over the Trinities. And we did this one backpack trip up in the Trinities with my son, Chet. It, 
it, we decided to do a, a, a back end pathway this cross country up into the uh, into the Smith Lake, which is a there's no trail going in there, and there's a couple ways to go in, a couple easy ways, and we decided to go in up the Canyon Creek way, and it was. He, Bill liked to fish all the time, right? And, and so he, he had just caught some salmon and smoked the salmon. And then we got off trail going into the, up into this lake. And it was a hike that took us, I don't know, maybe a couple hours longer than it should have because we, we took the hard way. We went into this heavy-duty brush, and the, 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 the uh, temperature was blazing of over 100. And then we we took a little break in an area where we could hardly find any shade and Bill pulled out the salmon that he wanted us to eat, you know, so we ate the smoked salmon and then we went to hiking again and all, all of our stomachs were just like wretched from the salmon, smoked salmon and the heat and the overexertion that we were going through. And at one point she just goes, I'm not going any further. And then about half an hour later, we reached the crest of this ridge and we saw the beautiful lake and nobody was there because it's a pretty hard lake to get to. And uh, we just had a great time after that, but it was just this moment of reckoning. And, and the, it was that salmon that I still have a hard time eating smoked salmon to this day. <laughs> we always laugh about it. Yep. Bill will always remember it as a great eco warrior. I miss him greatly. Yeah. I was happy to have him in my life. That was Robert Jam Goshen, longtime friend and colleague of Bill Lemos. We are going to go to an interview that Paul Schulman and I did in July of 2021 at the KZYX Satellite Studio in Fort Bragg. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what shaped your environmental consciousness? Yeah, sure. That's a good way to work into this. Thanks, Paul and, and uh, Chad for inviting me in. I'm pleased to be here. Um, Glad to have you. Um, my environmental background uh, really began with uh, the upbringing that we were allowed here in Mendocino in the 60s with a wide open door to, uh, to nature. I was born here in 1949, and uh, by the time I got to be 10 years old, it was a wide open door to explore as much of the outdoors as possible. And my friends and I used the Big River Beach and the Big River Estuary, the, uh, the Woodlands area, the Fort Bragg 10-mile area, all, all the areas that we could uh, get to. Either mom would drive us there or we would bicycle to areas and do quite a bit of exploring of the, uh, the rivers and the streams and um, the beaches. What a wonderland that we live here in, in Mendocino Coast. Um, my adult life I spent uh, trying to encourage students to take a broader look at uh, environmental issues and I was fortunate enough to be involved in the uh, Sonoma State Wilderness Education Program that was run by Robert Greenway and I actually took over his program from uh, him in the high school arena when I got my job in 1974 and 1975 I started taking students into the backcountry, and uh, from from those experiences, really shaped and formed my concept of how important it is for people to pay attention to what's going on in nature. And um, the resource management program that we eventually turned into um, 
uh, a program within a program at the Mendocino High School, the School of Natural Resources, was an outcome of many of the uh, years that I had spent as a child and as a young adult being in nature and um, just uh, seeing what was uh, what's going on out there. And um, fortunately, uh, I was able to actually get a, an advanced degree. My PhD is in environmental education, and um, I was able to use the experiences that I had had with students traveling in many remote areas to uh, formulate a wilderness program that was a curriculum for educating students on how to uh, become um, resource managers. And that was the School of Natural Resources, which continues at Mendocino High School to this day. So that's some of how my background shapes my environmental awareness. Thanks. Well, we know that a number of your students have become pretty active in our present movement, the, the new campaign to restore Jackson State Forest. Uh, can you tell us about a few of those? Yeah, there have been so many stellar students that have moved through uh, Mendocino School District that uh, have found ways to contribute to uh, research and education, um, monitoring, and uh, doing things that we thought at the time when we were doing uh, studies within the Big River Estuary that led to the acquisition of that uh, estuary property, the 7,500 acres that became part of state parks. We were doing fish studies, uh, coho salmon mostly, and steelhead. Um, students would uh, look at that data and report back to Fish and Wildlife on the findings. And it was a really great opportunity for those students to get on the ground training for how they would then go into college and into careers afterwards. Several of them have become fish and wildlife managers, um, fish and game representatives, some are engineers, some are educators. There have been a, a wide variety of students who have uh, moved on, some of them whom have come back and are now teaching at Mendocino High School. Uh, it's been quite a journey of, of, uh, of awareness of how student uh, experiential education can lead back to the community in real positive ways. No, one of those is Andy Wellspring. I am curious about um, this transfer of 7,500 acres or 12 square miles of private timberland to state parks and the steps. And since our theme tonight is how to save a forest, can you talk to us more about that? I sure can. Uh, um, it was an amazing process. Uh, it, it was started in 19, well, it actually started in 1976 when Georgia Pacific had a plan to do a timber harvest plan uh, within the estuary of Big River. And there was um, quite a public outcry at that point because it was going to be visible from the town of Mendocino. And it caused a, a stir and um, there was a protest and there were flyers and petitions and they backed off from doing it within view of town and just moved further inland. If you've ever flown over Mendocino County, you can see the the scars of uh, timber harvest plants past. Uh, there's just, it, it's quite a patchwork quilt of, of really ugly clear cuts and timber harvest plans. Uh, the Big River um, watershed has been extraordinarily hard hit over the years, not only originally with the the large trees removed in the first logging operations. The, 
We were just talking about that the other day. Uh, if they had only just left 20 or 25% of the old growth trees, just think of how happy we would be to walk through a forest and see a tree that was 12 feet in diameter. But no, they, they had one thing in mind, and that was to get all the timber out as quickly as possible. So we have very, very few old growth redwoods left on the Big River watershed. But if you look at the history of, first it was the Union Lumber Company and then Georgia Pacific, they really did uh, quite an extraordinary job of taking almost all the second growth off the Big River watershed. There are a few patches left, but it has um, been, in my estimation, 70 or 75 percent cleared for a second time. Uh, at one point, I believe it was 1985, I did a trespass with a couple of friends, and we walked from the bridge on Kompshukaya Road at a, um, uh, uh, beyond Boomershines, where the bridge crosses there in the valley, and we walked downstream past Hellgate, all the way through Nat Opening and down to Piccolotti's and all the way back to the ocean. It was a 20-mile hike, 25-mile hike on the river, gotten a little trouble from a local anti-activist, Jack Helfer, at the time, <laughs> because he said we were all trespassing and what right do we have to trespass on private property. But we were in the river for about 80% of the time. It took us three days to do it. And what wow. we saw during that period of time was that logging roads are everywhere in the backcountry of Big River and um, timber harvests have, uh, they're just acre after acre after acre that have been leveled. And basically nobody can see that because it's all private property away from any access that people have to those regions of Big River. And it really gave me a sense of how hard Big River has been abused over the years. And so the, the, the short story is that um, that really motivated me to become part of a group in 1999. There were just four of us who sat down at the Mendocino Hotel when Georgia Pacific was proposing to log again in the estuary. And four of us said, well, that's just not a good idea. What if we bought the property? And everybody just sort of laughed at the point of uh, how can we purchase something that, that grand? But uh, we had uh, an idea sprung at that point of how uh, possible it was to maybe move forward with, if we could find the right um, agencies and nonprofits and uh, donors to get uh, a group together to start pursuing ways to move around the, uh, the inevitability that we thought at that time of, the, of these trees being removed from the logging road, um, the haul road that goes from Big River up to the Woodlands. And lo and behold, within two and a half years, we had raised over $26 million. And it was wow. a combination of uh, private donors, um, uh, non-government organizations, agencies like Fish and Wildlife, Caltrans, uh, a whole lot of different agencies. There were federal agencies. And the School of Natural Resources was right in the middle of all of that. We were doing research. And I remember one day we were walking up uh, the hall road and a representative from the California Fish and Wildlife uh, head office in Sacramento was with us. And I looked down at the river and I mentioned that there were some seals in the river and I wondered if they were eating any salmon uh, fry or, you know, young of the year or 
And he said, there's no fish down in that river. And I said, well, there might be. And he says, well, if there's fish down in the river, I'll put in a million dollars to save this river. I go, okay, well, I'll find out. So we got our students into wetsuits, and we took some video cameras, and we went down to the river with the help of Cam Campbell Hawthorne, who had purchased the property right at that moment in 2000 from Georgia Pacific. And we did video footage. We've got great video footage of uh steelhead and coho salmon swimming around in the estuary and we sent that to the fish and wildlife um, executive and he did they the fish and wildlife eventually put money into that cause so we raised a whole bunch of money and uh, it was just a phenomenal uh, effort by the community and eventually was able to make that purchase of that estuary ridge to ridge from uh, the Big River Bridge east up to just east of the Woodlands recreational area, almost to the Piccolotti, the old Piccolotti Company Ranch property. It's about 10 miles of river uh, wetlands, and um, it's, it was a, a wonderful acquisition, and the land trust led that effort. Um, we eventually transferred that to state parks, and it became uh, part of the Mendocino Headlands Big River unit of the Mendocino Headlands State Park. Um, as far as taking that out of ownership of the private timber companies, yes, those trees are still standing on that property and they're still growing. There's a section of it um, included in that property called the Fritz Wonder Plot, which has been studied for over a hundred years. And it, you see a professor from Berkeley. Um, Emmanuel Fritz had been studying that plot, and um, those trees had shown remarkable growth characteristics due to the fact that the alluvial plain that they sit on has caused them to just uh, grow at a phenomenal rate. Most of them are second growth in that plot below the woodlands, and so there are characteristics within that watershed that needed to be protected. And as far as taking those trees and the rest of the trees out of timber production, sure, yes, there was a loss of some employment during that period of time that, um, that when, that, when that happened. But at the same time, if you've gone across Big River Bridge and looked down at the river east of uh, the bridge during any busy holiday weekend or even on a regular weekend, you'll see how many people are actually using and enjoying that estuary. That estuary is actually part of a marine protected area that we've been, that we did work on during the uh, that late 2000 period, 2009 to 2012, added into the marine protected area. So yes, there's a, a whole lot, a whole lot of facets of that property that have history, and um, uh, the value of whatever uh, I guess people want to put on that in terms of uh, what its value is, the value that seems to work for many people, especially people who come and visit here, as well as the local residents are hiking, biking, kayaking, horseback riding, swimming. I mean, the list goes on and on, the people who enjoy that watershed. So this is um, all really good information and the idea of value and ecosystem valuation, which unfortunately is a very you know, a modern concept because we think of everything in dollars and cents. We need to put a value on it. 
But if anybody was down at Big River this last weekend, you know, it's been 110 degrees inland, there was no parking anywhere. The the beach looked like Huntington Beach, and people were here, and they were spending money, and they were getting their spiritual recharge, and kids were playing in the water. But to me, this is the, the big package, the big picture of this acquisition that you you shepherded along is really important. And the Fritz Wonder Plot, which I'm glad you talked about, and people hopefully have heard of this. This is where it was proven, one of the three plots where it's been proven that redwoods are the greatest sequester of carbon in the world. And the redwood ecosystem puts on biomass at the fastest rate of any ecosystem in the world. And the Fritz Wonder Plot was possibly another place that would have been logged because it was owned by private timber interests. There is, um, there are lessons we need to take from this, and it's a very different situation now with Jackson State because we're not trying to buy private timberland, and the state is not offering to sell this land. But there's definitely things that we should be learning from this, and you know, I'm curious what what are the lessons you would, that you would take away from your struggle that we could apply now. Great question. Uh, I think the personally, it's a headset. Uh, modification. Uh, so uh, it's a great example, and I've used it often. Because I grew up in this region, and uh, timber harvesting, extraction, has been a mainstay of my family and many of the friends and neighbors that I know and, and love well here. Um, we get into our heads uh, certain concepts that take uh, some... <laughs> outside influence to change the way we think. So we're driving through the Big River estuary, and I'm looking at trees, and we're on a tour with a number of different organizations, one of whom was the uh, the uh, Save the Redwoods League. And Kate Anderton, a wonderful woman who had run that organization for years, was in the van with us, and we're driving along Kamshikaya Road, and I look over to what is a reserve of older growth timber that I had in my mind uh, already thought of as just something that the lumber companies, the original Big River Lumber Company and then the uh, Union Lumber Company and then Georgia Pacific and then Campbell Hawthorne had set aside just in case of emergency because it's close to the road and it's close to getting those big trees out of there and so in my mind i you know many years of being around those trees i thought i'm probably just going to be cut down at some point and hauled out of there so i made that comment as we're driving down compshiakai road oh look uh here's a grove of older trees but i didn't use the word trees i made a mistake and i used the word timber here's a nice stand of timber i said Kate Anderson from this front seat looked over her shoulder at me and said, we call them trees. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that kind of moment where I went, oh, yeah, I'm sort of stuck here in this extraction mentality. I have, you know, as many of us do, a need to survive. And so that survival is based upon taking things from the environment. And until we find that space in ourselves where we can go, hmm, maybe we can look at a different way or maybe we can do it better, 
Um, those kind of concepts of, you know, how to change that perspective of it's maybe not just about how much money this tree is worth. Maybe it's producing a value that is higher than I can even conceive. And so those kind of shifts, uh, for me personally, have been very, very fundamental in, in moving forward. The, uh, the next concept that uh, really moved me was the concept that students bring so much energy to their efforts to persuade people that you're looking at things a way adults look at them, but children might look at them in a different way. And that was during the Marine Life Protection Act uh, process that I mentioned, when students were able to stand up in front of adult groups who were discussing or debating whether or not it was a good idea to preserve some offshore protected areas for the future. And those students had that energy, that spark that said, what we're doing here today to preserve these protected areas in the ocean are really about us. They're not about you. Your generation had its chance. What did you do? You overfished the ocean. You overcut the timber. You did things that we now have to come back and look at in terms of what do we do as young people to make the changes so that we can survive just like you survived off the extraction mentality that, you, that you've been using. Thanks for that. I really appreciate that perspective. And uh, I remember that you wrote an article that I read that uh, we were able to put on our website, the Mendocino Trail Stewards.org website. The title is, How Many Salmon Eggs Per Board Foot? Question mark. And so, so where did that title come from? And you want to talk a little bit about that? And sure, Paul. How that relates to JDSF. Yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, what can I do? Uh, I'm a single person here uh, trying to struggle with the concept of what my background and experience can lead to in terms of helping other people see how important it is that we look forward and try to uh, do things that are going to enhance our, ex our existence and be better for the community. And so I wrote this paper. It came from a... a discussion that was about Casper Creek, um, one of the most studied watersheds on the planet in terms of timber harvesting. And uh, one of the presenters had used that argument, how many salmon eggs per board foot in terms of how do we proceed to manage a piece of property and, and give some kind of balance and make a balance happen between extraction and preservation. And so, you know, my, after having studied coho salmon populations on Big River for years, and, you know, just the, the concept that we had um, an abundance of fish here in my lifetime. I mean, we were fishing in the 60s. Uh, coho salmon were everywhere. I mean, every fall we would spend days and days in trolling in the rivers and in the bays and we'd always come home with fish and overnight it seemed that that all disappeared sort of like the abalone concept you know we had abalone and then all of a sudden there were a whole bunch of abalone that weren't there and there's conditions that are changing so rapidly so that was one of the things that that question asked is how do we find that balance between what we do and what we don't do and so um in my 
judgment, it would be great to have a whole lot of salmon eggs and not many board feet in areas that have been logged over and over again. And in the Jackson Demonstration State Forest, we can see perfect example of how many times we can look at a map and see how many timber harvest plants have taken place over the 50 years, 75 years that it's been in existence, plus added to how many times or how hard it was hit in the original extraction efforts in the first logging operation. And we can say, wow, these fish don't have a chance unless we give them some respite from these hard line um, attitudes that we've got to take more timber out. We've got to remove trees, which is going to make the, the uh, streams warmer and the fish are not going to like it. And the, the trees are going to re remove uh, soil from the moisture and it's going to get hot. All the things that we're doing don't make sense to me if we're going to think about trying to preserve these endangered coho salmon and steelhead. Thank you, Bill. But I encourage you to go to our website and uh, we have the MendocinoTrailStewards.org, the policy papers page, we have a number of great articles, including an extensive history by Bill Lemos, the how many salmon eggs per board feet problem. Thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, Bill. Really it was appreciate a pleasure. it. Yeah, yeah. Good. So I think the, the thing about my dad that was, there were many things that were amazing. One thing that was so amazing is that um, he really made everyone feel good around him and um, really invited people to be the best versions of themselves without even knowing, without even trying. And if you look at the sheer list of organizations that he was involved with, not just peripherally, but deeply, deeply involved with when he was working and then after he, you know, was retired, it's so impressive. And whenever I see it, it's just a call and an inter interpol interpolation to me to get more involved in our community, right? And to to uplift our community in a really huge way, because now it's really on us <laughs> to get things done. Um, but he was getting done so gracefully. And, you know, he really lived by, um, I think, perhaps having had seven sisters growing up, he <laughs> understood the art of compromise, but also always managed to get what he wanted. We always talk about when we were on wilderness trips with dad, he would, you know, we did everything via consensus process, sitting in circle with, you know, 15, 16-year-olds, 14 to 17-year-olds, right? And so you go around and around, and you say, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. Where are we going to hike tomorrow? What are you going to do? And so dad had this wonderful way of making sure that everyone agreed with what he wanted to get done or do. And so trails that, you know, where he wanted to go would suddenly become the easiest trail in the world. And the ones that he didn't want to go on were full of rattlesnakes and huge hills and, and ridges that weren't there the night before it would tend to show up on the hike the next day. Oh yeah, it's just right over this ridge. Yeah, it's right over this ridge. And so learning that art of compromise, yet really standing firm in getting what we know to be true is what we 
what we all need to do as as activists. You know, I'm not even sure my father really even identified as an activist. Um, I know he identified as a as a worker and as a union worker, as a teacher throughout his life. And I think he would probably call himself an environmental activist, but it was his activism was never that I saw rooted in a place of anger. It was always in a pl- from a place of we can do better together. I expect us all to be able to do better together. And I'm going to uplift the logging companies and expect them to do better. And it was just um, just such a beautiful way to get so much done and to have such a huge impact on our on our county and the state, really. Yeah. I printed the picture that of him that you posted last mm-hmm. week. And I put it on my desk and it just keeps, he just keeps looking at me with that, that thought. And I see exactly what you're saying that, and I'm sitting there at my desk and I'm not able to finish what I'm trying to do. And I look over and I get inspiration. Yeah. I mean, he would get mad and he would get mad at like environmental justice, but then he always returned to this place of like, no, we're going to do this right. And we're going to. We're going to get what we, what the people, and he would always say that to me. He would always say that to all of us. The people united will never be defeated. And even with a temporary setback or whatever, he would just say, the people united will never be defeated. And he had this, this belief that we would do the right thing and that we would change the world through our little actions. And, you know, Especially in his work on the MLPA, his work with Priscilla was really, I know that he really valued and and honored that collaboration that he had with her. Thank you for speaking with us, Justine. You are welcome. It's not the easiest thing right now, but... (laughs) Thank you for spending this hour with us, giving a tribute to the life of William Limo, a true eco-warrior. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Mendocino Volunteer Fire Department. Thank you to Justine Limos and Robert Jamgoshen for sharing your stories with us. Thank you also to Gene Parsons and the Miller Family Band for the music recorded live at the historic Camp Warm Amphitheater at the Mendocino Woodlands. I'm Chad Swimmer, and this has been the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.